Amen. Well, good morning. It is a privilege to be up here studying God's Word with you this morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Dan Mason, and I serve as a pastoral assistant here at Christ Church Westchester. And I was thinking, even as we were reading the passage earlier, I want to make clear I was named after Daniel, not Dan, who's descendants do not come off well in this passage. So to make that clear, uh, we've already read the passage for this morning in our two scripture readings because it is absurdly long. Um, but I would encourage you to have your Bible out this morning as we read, as I preach over the course of the sermon, because I'm going to be referring to this text frequently and it will benefit you greatly to see for yourself what I am referring to in the Bible. I'm not going to read or even reference every one of the 44 verses in this passage, but I do want you to hold me accountable that what I am saying is faithful to what is in this passage and God's Word as a whole. So last week, Isaac covered the death of Samson, who is the final judge in the book of Judges. And what we have left in chapters 17 through 21 are three stories detailing how terrible things were getting at this point in Israel's history. Uh, Judges 17 through 18 is the first of these three stories, though we won't actually be covering the other two in this series. The final sermon in this series will be next Sunday evening. Tim Grenz will be preaching from Judges 21-25, which is actually identical to Judges 17-6 that is in this passage. So I'm not going to touch that verse this morning because Tim is going to do a great job of covering it next week. So underlying our study this morning will be a key observation about this particular text in light of Judges as a whole. In this passage, God's people are not portrayed as worshiping foreign gods. So this is an important thing that we keep in mind. The beginning of the book of Judges gives a summary of the rest of the book, saying, And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. And they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So that's the story of Judges up until this point, is the people of Israel turning away from their God toward these false gods of the people around them. And that's what landed them under foreign rule time after time after time, requiring the judges to come and deliver them. But in this passage, God's people are trying to worship him. They're trying to worship Yahweh, the true God, but in improper and pagan ways. So compared to the rest of Judges, this passage is about following the right God the wrong way. And since, since this is our key idea, I want to make sure that we're all on the same page about this, that we're clear about what I'm saying. Because when we think of idolatry, we think of our hearts running in completely the wrong direction, heedless of God and his commands and his word, which is true. That is idolatry. The Israelites, when they sacrifice their children to an Asherah pole, bear no resemblance to the covenant relationship that God made with them at Mount Sinai. But idolatry can also take the form of using God and his word and the actions that we associate with worshiping him that he calls us to in ways that are counter to his will. 
and counter to what he has actually commanded us to do as his people. So if we think of Hophni and Phinehas offering strange fire in the tabernacle, or Uzzah reaching out to touch the ark to make sure that it doesn't fall, or Saul making an unauthorized sacrifice before going into battle, we can recognize that this is a biblical category of worshiping the right God, Yahweh, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the wrong way, which ultimately means that they are not worshiping him at all. So we're going to see how that works out in the actions of three of the main characters of this passage, Micah, the Levite, and the Danites. These three characters helpfully illustrate three different ways in which we can distort the truth of God's word and instead let our hearts be carried away into sin and to idolatry, even as we think we are faithfully following after God. We'll take these three points to frame our time this morning. First, prosperity. Second, performance. And third, peer pressure. So let's pray, and then we'll dive into this text together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity that you've given us to study it together. We thank you for uh, preparing our hearts this morning as we sing and read and pray and fellowship with one another. But Lord, now we come to the table to feast on the riches of your word. Uh, May you soften our hearts that we would see uh, not just the sin in the lives of these uh, characters, these people in the Bible, but the sin in our own hearts, that we would be quick to repent and turn to you, knowing that you always meet repentance with grace and forgiveness and mercy. Lord, we thank you for that, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our first point is prosperity. For our first character study, we're going to analyze the first person who's mentioned in this story. So let's read verse 1 again. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. So Micah does not seem to be a particularly notable person. I mean, he's moderately wealthy, clearly, based on this passage, some of the things that it says. But the only thing that's really notable about him is that he decided he needed his own personal tabernacle inside of his house. The last verse of this passage, chapter 18, verse 31, reminds us that the house of God is actually at Shiloh. The house of God is where the Ark of the Covenant is located, where sacrifices are made, and where God's presence dwells among his people. It's where he has explicitly instructed them that he is to be worshipped. And it's located in Shiloh, which is a city literally right in the middle of the hill country of Ephraim. Which verse 1 tells us is where Micah lives. Of all of the Israelites, of all of God's people, Micah is among the closest geographically to the actual house of God at Shiloh. So apparently he didn't do this because of a distance problem. It seems... More likely that Micah is doing this for himself in order to create an idol that gives physical form to the invisible deity that he is seeking to worship. So in theory, his heart is in the right place. He is assumedly trying to worship Yahweh since he even invokes his name at the end of chapter 17. His mom, at the beginning of the passage, certainly sees herself as a follower of God, and Micah tries to incorporate at least some of the elements of the true tabernacle, the true house of God, into his own little knockoff, 
where he has a Levite as a priest, and he has an ephod, which is the special garment that God commanded the Israelites to create for priestly service. But despite these efforts, his head is most certainly not in the right place, since his shrine, as the text calls it, uh, was explicitly outlawed in Deuteronomy chapter 12, and also includes a clear violation of the second commandment. Exodus 20 verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, period, or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. So clearly, Micah has missed God's actual intention for worshiping him in the house of God. But the deeper question still remains, why does he feel the need to do this? when the house of God exists and is so close by. Ultimately, the text doesn't say, so I'm not going to pretend that we have an airtight argument here. But Micah's words at the end of chapter 17 reveal a great deal about his motivation. In verse 13, he says, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me. So this whole elaborate charade that he puts on is seemingly done in the name of ensuring prosperity for himself. Micah makes for himself a bad approximation of the true tabernacle, complete with priest and ephod, so that he could worship God on his own terms. He didn't have to get up and put on nice clothes. He didn't have to pay the tax. He didn't have to interact with some random priest that he's never met. Instead, he thinks to himself, I can ensure my closeness to God through actual physical proximity to the place of worship and through running things according to my rules and according to my own desires. He didn't do this out of a great love for God. He didn't do this out of a great desire to dwell in God's presence. Now, he didn't actually want God at all. He wanted God's benefits. He wanted God to prosper him. He wanted prosperity and safety And provision. And because he functionally founded for himself a church of one, he didn't actually have anyone around him to challenge him on this belief or this practice. So we must then ask ourselves the uncomfortable question that arises from this passage Is this how we are approaching God? Do we want him on our time and according to our rules? And for our benefit? Or do we actually seek to love and serve him in the ways that he has commanded us to do? Let's press in a little bit to what that might look like in our lives. Of course, the most insidious and pervasive form of this thinking, some of you are probably already ahead of me, is called the prosperity gospel. If you believe that God has promised you money and success and health and prosperity because you have enough faith, then you have bought into an anti-biblical understanding of God and you should run as fast as you can away from whatever teacher or church or book told you that that was true. But many of us do understand how wrong that thinking is. That's not a temptation for us to fall into that particular heresy. But its principles still creep into our hearts in ways that we may not actually be aware of. For Christians, it most often looks like 
believing that God owes us something good in response to our righteousness or response to our good behavior. It could be a spouse or a particularly attractive spouse as a reward for sexual purity in the midst of singleness. It could be a child who grows up to become a Christian because you've regularly taken them to church week after week as they grew up. Maybe you're expecting business success because you've been honest in your dealings. Or maybe you think you deserve recognition at work because you've been a hard worker and worked with integrity. Now, all of these are good things. Those are good things. And we would rejoice in any of them happening in our lives and the lives of people around us. But the key distinction that I want to make is the difference between believing that we deserve them versus seeing them as good gifts of God. If we become bitter and angry at God when he doesn't give the gifts that we think we deserve, then that reveals that we're actually buying into some form of the prosperity gospel in our own hearts. Ultimately, he's given us himself, which is the greatest gift that we can imagine. But beyond that, he has given us innumerable good gifts that should be enjoyed as just that. Gifts from God, given out of generosity, out of his love and delight in his children, not out of obligation for the good gifts that we have done. Paul reminds us in Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Commenting on this passage, J.I. Packer summarized God's perfect provision for us in this way. He says, the meaning of he will give us all things can be put thus. One day we will see that nothing, literally nothing, which could have increased our eternal happiness has been denied us. And that nothing, literally nothing, that could have reduced that happiness has been left with us. The prosperity gospel denies this fundamental truth of God's word and refuses to trust him for his provision. May that not be so in our hearts and our lives, even as it was in Micah's. Now this idolatry of his own comfort sets Micah up for further devastation that is to come. Look at his final scene in this passage with me in chapter 18, verses 21 through 26. I will read that. So they, being the Danites, turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. When they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house called out, and they overtook the people of Dan, and they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you that you come with such a company? And he said, You take my gods that I made, and the priest, and go away, and what have I left? How then do you ask me, what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you, and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan went their way, and Micah saw that they were too strong for him. He turned and went back to his home. So Micah is furious in this passage about the injustice that is done to him in the theft of his possession. So he comes out, and he confronts the Danites, backed by his own angry mob. 
And the Danites ask him what the matter is. And you can just hear the fury and the indignation in his voice. When he yells back at them, you take the gods that I made and the priests and you go away. And what have I left? How then do you ask me what is the matter with you? This raw emotion that we see from Micah displays a fundamental reality of what's actually going on in his heart. In their book, Untangling Emotions, Winston Smith and Alistair Groves explain that emotions are fundamentally an expression of what we value or love. When you get what you love, you are happy. When someone else gets it, you are envious. When someone deprives you of it, you get mad. When you lose it, you grieve. What you care about shapes how you feel. Your emotions are always expressing the things that you love, value, and treasure, whether you understand them or not. So Micah's indignation at the conduct of the Danites exposes what's truly going on beneath the surface. Of course, at one level, this is understandable. I don't think anyone would fault Micah for being angry that someone stole his stuff and poached his employee. But the way in which Micah responds shows what he actually, truly cares about. Notice he asks them, what have I left? This is not a man who's angry about misplaced property. This is a man with a misplaced identity. He loves his idols. He loves the priest. And he loves the personal comfort and theoretical prosperity that they provide more than life itself. All his earthly happiness depends on continuing this little cult of one that he has set up for his own benefit. So what what should Micah's response be to these things? If emotions represent what we care about, then the godliest response in this situation or any situation would be representative of loving what God loves and desiring what God desires, and treasuring what God treasures. Micah was so deep down the hole of his own idolatry that we're really stretching the limits of hypotheticals here. But what if Micah had actually been glad at the disappearance of all of these objects of his misplaced worship? He actually could have been thankful that these things that were detrimental to his right relationship with God were taken away. That would have represented a heart that loves what God loves. If I say I love my wife, which I do, but I grow angry and defensive when she patiently points out a way that maybe I'm not serving her as well as I could be, then my emotions are showing me in that moment my wife is not my number one value, not my number one priority. My own pride is. So what I value right now above serving her and making her feel loved is making myself feel vindicated and justified in my actions. But unless I pop open the hood and see what's actually going on in my heart to produce those feelings of anger and defensiveness, then I'm never going to get to the root cause. And I'm never going to discover the unfortunate truth of just how selfish and hypocritical and sinful my own heart can be. I want to encourage you this week to follow your emotions down into your heart and see what values they're actually representing. Proverbs 4.23 tells us that everything we do flows out of our hearts. 
So if we ignore what's going on there, then we'll have no idea why we're doing what we're doing. As Christians, we are called to be self-controlled, not allowing ourselves to be dragged around by emotions that we cannot understand or explain. And how can we do that if we don't understand what's going on in our own hearts? So this week, pay attention to your emotions and see what they tell you about the state of your heart. It'll be a little scary, and it might hurt a little bit, but I like to think about it kind of like flossing your teeth. It's necessary to keep everything healthy and to scrape out what may be hiding in the dark recesses of our hearts, out of sight. If you feel a sensitivity in a certain tooth, that's a sign that maybe you've neglected that tooth and you've let things build up that do not belong there. And now some attention is needed. Our emotions are the exact same way. Whenever you see a strong emotional reaction in your life, there is underneath that a strong desire or a strong value. And sometimes, of course, that is good and right. But when we are furious at someone who cuts us off in traffic, or when we're paralyzed by fear at the thought of an upcoming conversation with someone, or maybe when we're incredibly happy that our plans fell through and that we don't have to talk to someone. We should take notice of these things. It should be like taking a big bite of ice cream and feeling a sharp pain in one of your teeth. That's a signal that something is going on and we need to pay attention to it. This is not new age, touchy-feely theology light for anyone whose eyes are glazing over and saying, the Bible doesn't care about my emotions. This is a biblical concept. Jesus tells us where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Or to put it differently, the eye cries. Or the fist clenches. Or the stomach tightens. Or the smile forms. Or the laugh emerges. The way that we trace where our treasures truly lie is to follow our emotions down into our hearts and see where they came from. Now, sometimes you need a trusted friend to help you to continue the image. This is why we go to the dentist. The dental hygienist always picks and brushes and flosses my teeth harder than I ever do. But it's good and it's necessary. She can see stuff that I can't in my mouth. And I depend on her work to keep my teeth healthy beyond even my normal routine of brushing and flossing. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the the wounds of a friend. And believe me, I feel that verse every time I go to the dentist. And the hygienist is just scraping away at my teeth. It doesn't feel good. It's not a pleasant sensation. But it's for my good. It's so that my teeth can stay healthy. And God has given us one another to help scrape out the dark recesses of our own hearts that we are blind to, but may be more obvious to those around us who observe our words and our behavior and our emotions. So seek out others to help you in this process that God and God alone would rule in the affections of our hearts. Find someone you trust. And say, based on the way that I respond to the situations of my life, what do you think my heart values the most? 
And then be ready for an honest answer. Be ready for it to feel about as good as getting your teeth scraped at the dentist. But if you do go home this week and find a whole bunch of sin and pride and misplaced affections, do not be discouraged. There is mercy and forgiveness for all who come to God in repentance and faith. Through the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, we not only have forgiveness from our sin, but John tells us in 1 John, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. He has promised us a new heart and new affections. So come to him and be made new. As we'll continue to see, our hearts play an essential role in the right worship of our God. Without them, we're simply putting on a religious performance. That brings us to point number two, performance. The next character that we're going to examine is the Levite, perhaps the most enigmatic character of this whole story. He's a drifter with nothing to his name except his name itself, which is that he is a descendant of Levi. One commentator describes him this way, the Levite is shown to be a complex and somewhat contradictory figure, being passive but ambitious, meek but confident, a thief as well as a self-professed follower of Yahweh, and a father and a son with no real sense of familial obligation. But we do get one very important piece of information about him, and that comes at the very end of the passage. So, verse 30 of chapter 18, after the Danites have set up shop in their new city, It says, the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So this text doesn't make this explicit connection, but we can read between the lines, put two and two together, and deduce that the man who is set up to be the priest of the Danites is none other than the Levite that was in the house of Micah. And this is supposed to be the crazy twist ending to the story. It certainly would have been a shocking revelation to the Jewish hearers when it was written. It's like a sixth sense moment where the narrator reveals a key detail that completely changes the way that you understand the whole story that came before it. So this wasn't just any Levite. This was the grandson of Moses. So why is this important? We'll figure that out. First, this means he had no business pretending to be a priest. He had the wrong dad in order to be a priest. If Aaron, Moses' brother, had been his grandfather and not his great uncle, then yes, he could have assumed his rightful place, making sacrifices before the Lord. But that was not the case. According to Leviticus 6 and 7, only the descendants of Aaron, the brother of Moses, could serve as priests. The rest of the Levites were dedicated for God's service, but they were attendants in the tabernacle, assumedly managing its upkeep, and in the wilderness helping to tear it down and move it and set it back up again when Israel encamped somewhere else. But apparently, for Jonathan, this Levite, and for Micah, just being a Levite was close enough that he could still pretend to be a priest. But second, 
this revelation of Jonathan's heritage shocks us with the location of this story within the broader history of Israel. In the space of two generations, Moses' direct descendants have completely abandoned the commands that God gave them as he brought them out of their captivity in Egypt. This is not hundreds and hundreds of years later where each successive generation slowly moves away from the faith of their fathers, largely being separated from the mighty wonders of the Exodus. Jonathan, as a boy, probably heard eyewitness accounts from his father Gershom recounting when God struck Egypt with ten plagues, when he parted the Red Sea, when he provided water from the rock or manna from heaven. But apparently, to Jonathan, these are just empty stories. That was then. This is now. And what God did in the lives of Moses, his grandfather, and Gershom, his father, has no bearing that we can tell on the way that he's living his life now. What he's seeking is not the signs and wonders of the living God, but to make his own living off the external signs of pretending to serve a God who has no impact on his life. This is supposed to be a warning for God's people through all time that we would be wise to heed this morning. D.A. Carson has noted a similar generational progression throughout church history, saying one generation believed the gospel and held that there were certain social, economic, and political entailments that came along with it. The next generation assumed the gospel, but identified still with those entailments. And the following generation denied the gospel, those entailments becoming everything. Unfortunately, we have seen this same pattern in countless churches and denominations throughout church history. But what is the end result of this process? What is described in this third generation? It is a heretical belief known as legalism. Jesus himself talks about legalism in Matthew 23, so would you turn there? With me, and we can read it together. While you're turning there, I want us to see the error of legalism in both the lives of Jonathan and Micah the Levite. Neither desired a personal covenant relationship with God. Micah sought out God's benefits, seeing the actions of his false tabernacle as sufficient to gain those benefits. Jonathan performs the duties that he thinks God's people are supposed to complete without any regard for the God who instituted them in the first place. Seemingly to him, being a member of God's people is all about going through the motions, completely detached from his heart. That's the core problem with legalism. It is loving God with our performance, with our actions, but with not, not with our hearts. It's following the right God the wrong way. Our God has called us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And legalism is detaching our behavior from our affection, which is an entirely unbiblical distinction. So Jesus absolutely blasts the Pharisees in Matthew for this exact same kind of religious hypocrisy. So let's read Matthew 23, starting in verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint 
and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Those are brutal words. We have to ask ourselves, do we follow God's commands because that's just what we're supposed to do? Maybe to look good for the people around us. Or do we actually try to live a life pleasing to God out of the overflow of a heart that has been transformed by God. According to Jesus, good works come from a heart that is overwhelmed with thankfulness. Conversely, being outwardly righteous in the name of God, but being inwardly far from him is abhorrent in his sight. God's commands for his people are not given as the means of making them right with him. Rather, they are given as the distinguishing marks of those who already have been made right with him. Instead of the false extreme of legalism, the Bible offers us the life-giving truth of the gospel. That though we are far more sinful than we could ever make up for, God made a way for us to be right with him through the perfect life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ who even now is interceding on behalf of his people at the right hand of the Father, so that any who place their faith in him for salvation find it freely given and eternally secured. As opposed to legalism, Jonathan Edwards famously says, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. There is forgiveness for all at the cross of Jesus Christ, freely offered and immediately given to all who repent and believe. Will you do that this morning? As he died, Jesus said, it is finished, showing us that the work of salvation had already been completed at the cross. We don't need to strive any longer. We don't need to work to be made right with God. Will you rest in that salvation today? For those of you who are Christians here Praise God, we have already achieved that salvation given through Christ, but we must still be aware of the ways that legalism can creep into our hearts. Where are the areas where we are going through the motions instead of actively giving our hearts to God? In what ways are we, in the words of Isaiah, honoring God with our lips while our hearts are far from him? Are you here at church anytime the doors are open, but really only paying God any attention while you're here at church? Is your Bible reading a way to check the box on your daily duties, or is it a delight to commune with your God? 
Are you more concerned with making sure everyone around you at church knows that you're singing really loud on Sunday morning? More than actually using that time to worship the Lord in your heart and with your voice. Maybe you're tempted to just breeze over the difficulties of a strained relationship with someone at church and to put on a fake smile around them in the name of looking like you have it all together when people pass you in the hallway. No, I'm good. Everything's good. Instead of doing the hard heart work of forgiving others as God himself has forgiven us. Let us not go through the motions like Jonathan the Levite, seeking earthly benefits as a cheap substitute for the true eternal blessings of knowing and following our Savior. And that brings us to our final point, peer pressure, which is the term that I'm going to use to describe the behavior of the Danites in chapter 18. So let's flip back to Judges from Matthew, and we're going to read the first verse of chapter 18 together. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So in order to understand what that means, we need to refresh ourselves on the conquest of Canaan under Joshua and the resulting geography of the Holy Land. So... When Joshua led the people over the Jordan and into the promised land, God gave specific instructions to each tribe regarding where they would make their dwelling place in their new home. On first glance, the phrasing of this verse, chapter 18, verse 1, might make it seem like God didn't give an inheritance to the descendants of Dan. He might have forgotten about them, maybe. But Joshua 19 makes clear that that is not the case. God gave them a land allotment. He instructed them to conquer a region just west of Jerusalem, stretching out to the Mediterranean Sea on the western border, uh, north of the allotment given to Judah and south of the one given to Ephraim. But Judges 1 tells us what happened. It says the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down into the plain. So what happened is not that God didn't give them a land to settle. It's that it was hard. It was hard to conquer, and the Amorites were stronger than they thought. So they just gave up. They stopped trying to conquer the land that God gave them. And that's where we find them here in chapter 18 of Judges. They are a people without a home. Not because God didn't give them one, but because they failed to trust him in actually acquiring it. Instead of doing what they were supposed to do, which was trust God and carry out the commands that he gave them, they sought the easy way out, which was going over 100 miles away and conquering a peaceful, defenseless city that actually lay outside of the land that God gave to his people. This isn't even part of the allotment for the Israelites as a whole. This is a mob mentality taking over in the Danites and wreaking havoc in the lives of many. 
We, of course, in this passage, don't have a record of whose initial idea it was to go attack Laish, but it seems to have gotten wholesale endorsement from the Danites, leading to disastrous consequences. And this is the final form of idolatry that I think that this text is trying to show us. Peer pressure. Allowing ourselves to be far more influenced by the opinions of those around us than by the word of God itself. Let me say first and foremost that I think God created us to be influenced by those around us. I don't think that that is a defect in our human condition. We are meant to be encouraged and influenced and rebuked and exhorted and instructed by the people around us. That's what the church is. That's why the church exists. Lone Ranger Christianity is a completely foreign concept to the Bible. And we don't just join churches in order to become a part of the body of Christ. When we are saved, we become members of the body of Christ, and that truth is reflected in our membership in a local church. Paul exhorts the Philippians to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul could not be clearer here. He wants them all to think the same way. He wants them to partake of godly peer pressure when it comes to following Christ as we shape one another and exhort one another and rebuke one another to press onward to the call of Christ Jesus, that we run the race with faithfulness. The author of Hebrews says, stir one another up. He encourages them to get everybody riled up about something. But what are we stirring one another up to? Love and good works. Good and godly things. Now in the midst of that, I do want to pause and clearly acknowledge that the church is not infallible. Only her Savior is. So if you have been abused by the church in the past, then please do not hear me saying, or this church saying, or God's word saying, that because it was a group of Christians who abused you, then it's okay. If that happened to you, I'm so sorry. That is not the way of Christ. That is not the way that our Lord and Savior has called us to live with one another. Just because it was a Christian or a group of Christians does not make it right. But insofar as the church functions as it should, which by God's grace Often it does. Encouraging one another to be in full accord for the sake of the gospel, then the church is a good and glorious gift from God to his people, one that should not be ignored or cast aside, but heeded and participated in for God's glory and for our good. So the key question we have to ask ourselves is this Where is our peer pressure? pushing us? Where are the people around us encouraging us? What are they calling us to value, to seek after, to love, to hate, or to worship? The problem with Judges 18 is not that the Danites all have the same idea on their minds. It's not that they're thinking the same way and working towards the same goal. 
It's that the goal they're heading towards is not a godly one. I'm sure it sounded like it, because it's almost a godly one. We're going to settle into a land for our inheritance here in Canaan. That's, that's what God promised us, isn't it? Well, yes, but not the way that they're trying to do it. They're taking it into their own hands. But it's similar enough that seemingly everyone in the camp of the Danites gets swept away in the current of what the majority is trying to do. Even worse, they pay token lip service to God by asking Jonathan the Levite, who is definitely a questionable source of God's will, whether God will bless their endeavor to take over this peaceful city. Interestingly, you notice, he gives them a very noncommittal answer, and the ESV translates it really well. He basically says, well, whatever you do, God will see it. And they're like, great, we're going to do it. They take that very positively, but he's, he does not endorse what they're going to do. Um, but they pay lip service to God, and much like Micah seeking God's approval for this cheap ripoff of his house, of his dwelling place, so the Danites are following the right God with the, in the wrong way, with how they twist his promises to try to give support for something that God did not command and does not condone. They're trying to establish a home for themselves, an identity for themselves, not by following God, who has already given them those things, but by taking them into their own hands. If we're just going along with the current of those around us, it is incredibly easy to lose track of how far we drift away from the truth of God's word. And there's a horrifying example of this in the Bible, in the book of Galatians, where Paul recounts how he had to confront and rebuke the apostle Peter for doing this, for surrounding himself with Jews who were claiming to be following God and claiming to be holding fast to what God had said, when actually they dragged him so far away from the gospel that Peter stopped believing it altogether. That he treated the Gentiles like they were not God's people when he was the one who had the vision three times to say, yes, the Gentiles are being grafted into God's people. He literally forgot direct revelation from God because of the influence of the people around him. And if one of the apostles is not immune from this, may we not be prideful enough to think that we are. There are innumerable ways that this can happen in our lives. But truthfully, I think one of the most notable in our day is the way that we interact with those with whom we disagree. In our public discourse, especially on social media. As long as we feel like we are right, according to our group, then that frees us to show contempt to anyone who does not fall in line with the ideology that we think is most important. Friends, let me assure you that it is not God's will for his people to be condescending or dismissive or harsh or belittling to anyone with whom they disagree. What we might want to call righteous indignation, I think we should just call being a jerk. And denigrating people who are made in the image of God, supposedly in the name of the God who made them. 
Brothers and sisters, may this not be. Fighting for our views and tearing down those with whom we disagree may earn us Twitter followers. And it might earn us the admiration of those in our group. But may those not be the trophies that our hearts are seeking after. For they are not good and godly rewards. If our stance is not one of love, patience, grace, seeking the benefit of others and giving them the benefit of the doubt, especially those with whom we disagree, then our cause that we feel so strongly in our hearts may not be as righteous as we are tempted to believe. But even those of us who don't spend much or any time on social media are not exempt from this temptation. Social media is just a pressure cooker for all of these things to come out, but they still exist in the heart of every human being. How do we define ourselves? By the people that we associate with? By the people that we don't associate with? By the people who we think are wrong and who we completely owned in showing them how wrong they are? By what we stand for or what we stand against? If we look to a party or a cause or a campaign or a club or a group or whatever for our identity, for a sense of what truly matters, then we will begin to interpret the world around us through the lens of what matters to that group instead of through the lens of God's good word and will. It's so tempting. So tempting to find our reassurance in the midst of the mob. But we need to recognize, ultimately, that our assurance is not found in the people around us, but in the spirit within us. Let me say that again. Our assurance that we are loved, that we belong, that we are accepted, does not come from the people around us. It comes from the Holy Spirit within us. If we believe the promises of God for us, then we are not bound to find our confidence in those around us, those who may or may not be helping us live lives holy and acceptable to God. We need not repeat the mistakes of the Danites, but we can enjoy the freedom that belongs to those who are secure in their true identity, and that is children of God. These two chapters display human depravity in many forms. Micah and Jonathan, the Levite, and the Danites are all examples of what not to do. But like every character of the Bible, they are meant to show us our own moral bankruptcy and to point us forward to the only one who did live a perfect life the only one whose heart was never swept away in idolatry, the only one who always worshipped the right God the right way. When he was tempted in the wilderness, did Jesus give in when the devil said, just turn these stones to bread? No, because his own personal comfort and pleasure and prosperity was not more important than serving the Lord. And when the devil enticed him with the kingdoms of the world, did he give in? No, Because he knew we cannot separate our heart from our actions. So he cannot be near to the Lord and serve him with his heart, even when he bows down to the devil. What about when Satan told him to jump off the pinnacle of the temple? No, he didn't need external affirmation of seeing the angels come to his rescue and remind him of who he was. He knew who he was. He was confident in his identity as the beloved son of a good 
father. Jesus didn't succumb to the idolatry of Micah or Jonathan or the Danites, where all Israel failed, where we all failed. Jesus did not and does not. He did not pursue his own comfort, but considered others more important than himself, humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is the opposite of personal comfort and prosperity. He didn't simply give lip service to serving God, but gave all of himself up to securing God's people for his possession, for the sake of the mission that his father had called him to. And he suffered the mocking and the beating and the cursing of the crowd, being rejected by everyone around him so that he could bring them to himself. Unlike Micah's idols, he cannot be taken away. Unlike Jonathan the Levite, he is the great high priest who is forever interceding for those he loves. Unlike the city of the Danites, we have a promised, secure home with him forever. We do not need to doubt our identity, but it has been given to us once and for all in Jesus. Jesus is what every heart is seeking after. He is the God of the Bible. He is Yahweh, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping, true God of Israel. He is the God who demands true worship from his people. But what does that mean? How do we worship the right God the right way? What does he require of us? Not fancy shrines or sacrifices. Not a title or garments or lip service or outward conformity to what we're supposed to do. Not victory in our lives or making sure that we can establish ourselves as who we believe we are meant to be. He wants you. He wants your heart. That is how we worship our God the right way, by giving him fully ourselves, our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, loving him with all of our might, that we give ourselves to be used to spread his gospel in his service for his will in the name of his son to the praise of his glorious name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it penetrates deep into our hearts and exposes the things in there that are not godly, that do not look like Christ. And Lord, that is a hard truth, but it is one that we must reckon with. Father, I pray that you would soften our hearts to hear from your word this morning, that we might recognize our own idolatry, recognize the ways in which we are seeking to use you for our benefit. But Lord, we know that you forgive. May we come to you in humility and repentance, knowing that we will always, always find forgiveness at the throne that has been bought by the precious blood of Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.